All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome, everyone, to the MBIT podcast. Over the span of Bob Muglia's decades-long career, he has been at the forefront of the most innovative and significant solutions within the data technology industry. As the president of Microsoft, he worked with some of the biggest names in tech, including Bill Gates. Bob was also the former CEO of Snowflake, a cloud computing data company, where he took the startup from near zero to a $1.5 billion valuation in just a few years. Today, we're going to be discussing data and AI and the implications both of them could have on society today. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Great. It's great to be here, Seamus. Absolutely. I like to do these interviews a little bit differently than most. I want to start off with your earliest context. So what do you think would be the most important parts of your story, whether that be from your early childhood, that could help give me a reference point to where you are today? Well, sure. You know, I grew up in a period, you know, a time where where there was a lot of interesting technology. It was the forefront and the beginning of computing, really. I remember when the first personal computers came out, uh, the TRS-80, the well-known Trash-80, which was a popular model in the, in the 1970s, and and some of the other things that Altair, some of the other things that even preceded it. And I and I got a chance pretty early in my experience when I was at college. I was working for a small computer company um, called Condor in Ann Arbor. I was going to Michigan. And um, and it had a relational database that they built, and I was building applications for customers. I was like a consultant doing applications in the early days, and I think that, that really helped to establish a direction for me in some senses. Yeah, speaking of that early career you had at, at that data center, how did that career help you get interested in data? What was it about that job that got you interested in the data field? Well, you know, I don't know that it was, it's sort of funny, in school, in college, I was focusing more on communications, actually, and thinking that communications, which was, you know, not digital back then. I mean, let's let's be clear, in the 1970s, communication was all analog, and I wound up joining one of the first digital telecommunications companies right out of school, uh, Rom Corporation, uh, which built a digital PBX, which... Back then was a forefront of technology. Now they're pretty much obsolete. This was really before networking even had come out. But I wound up building applications inside that company when I joined it straight out of college. And I started working with data, essentially. And I started working pretty early um, on mini computers. And then I shifted to working on IBM uh, PCs, the early, some of the earliest IBM PCs, to actually do data collection for those, for those PBXs. Yeah, and I grew up around the early 2000s. I've always had a deep passion and curiosity for technology. Um, but what is PBX for those of you, uh, for I'm those sorry, in the audience who might not public be Public Branch Exchange, it stands for. It's a, it's a business telecommunications system. It, it's, it's, you know, before there were cell phones, people had, heart, had landlines. And everybody had a phone at their desk. You had to have one because it's the only way you could communicate with people unless you wanted to go down the hall and, and yell and call out of them. And, uh, and so that was an early system. And at the time, most of them were made by AT&T, which was an, you know, still a monopoly back then, right? I and mean, if you go back in the 1970s, it was still only one big phone company in the United States. This was before they broke up the phone company into, into smaller, they called them baby bells. 
Yeah, you mentioned AT&T. I know when the first iPhone came out, the iPhone original, I think AT&T was the only carrier that it, it supported. And it didn't become until a few years later where all the other carriers started to disperse. And even now, now they're starting to combine like with Sprint and T-Mobile. But yeah. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were. They actually broke into like five of these baby bells, and then they combined. They've done all sorts of stuff since then, and they've swizzled all around. But that's you know that's what happens. I mean, it it was it really was one big monopoly, and that was a problem. Um, and and so breaking it up was, I actually think, a good thing in this case. Gotcha. So you're exploring data. Um, when did that transition end up going to when you started working at Microsoft, and what was that experience like? So I was working on data collection on PCs, and to some extent, Windows. This was the really early days of Windows. I mean, Windows was barely functional. And in, in the late 80s, uh, my wife and I decided to move out of the Bay Area. We were living in, in, in Santa Clara at the time, Mountain View, and we decided to move up to, to the Seattle area. She was looking at uh, actually a position at Microsoft, and, then, and we wound up ultimately both taking jobs at Microsoft. My first role was to be the first technical person on SQL Server, you know, which is Microsoft's SQL database offering that they have. Back then, everything was done in small and medium-sized businesses on pencil and paper. Really, automation hadn't taken fold inside, compu- inside businesses, and even larger businesses had many parts that were manual. And databases and then the applications that were were built on top of them were really core technology to revolutionize business and enable business to become automated and, and to become the digital entities that we know of them today. And SQL Server and the and the products from Microsoft, particularly Windows NT, both products I worked on were really very, you know, very instrumental in democratizing computing for literally millions of small businesses. You know, until the products from Microsoft came out, it was way too expensive. Computing was way too expensive for, for smaller companies. And all of a sudden, a dentist office could afford to become automated. And, and that really happened. That began in the 1990s. And hopefully it's done today. There are probably some dentist office that still use pencil and paper, but hopefully not many of them. Yeah. You worked at the SQL Server for Microsoft and oversaw the development of a few other uh, types of products and software. Um, what was your approach to product management and innovation in such a competitive and fast-changing technological market? So when I was at Microsoft, I kind of would go into a group that was either starting out an early starting in early stage startups, essentially inside Microsoft, or that had you know was having some problems, and I would go in and help to you know to fix that organizationally. So that really meant making sure we had the right people in charge. I mean, what it meant was leadership, really. And leading organizations, and you know, leadership is really three things. It's a strategy, it's establishing a, a strategy that is competitive and can win. It is putting in place a process to actually implement a structure to, to actually implement that. Because you, when you're managing people, you need to build structure around them to, to help them understand how to work together. And then ultimately, it's about people and choosing the right people. So the strategy, structure, and people is what leadership is really all about. And that's what I tried to do inside these different organizations. And it was an interesting time. I mean, I'll say this is a, this is a fun story because uh, this was about 2003 when I took over Windows Server. And that was the really early days of Linux. And, you know, there was a view, you know, and I guess you could say it's a correct view that Linux would replace Windows Server. And what we found was that, that you know, in order to make Windows Server successful, we just had to make it a better product than what Linux was. And uh, in order to better understand that, I actually built a data center in my house 
I still have it. It's down, straight down below me right now. I've got four racks in there. Swear to God, there's four racks. It's all raised floor. Uh, at one point, I had 11 Windows servers running in there. And the reason I did this is I just set up myself as a small business so I understood my products and how they were used and the experience my customers were having. And um, and I had people out of, all over the time trying to fix problems. I was always finding problems and and uh, and it was you know it was really a tremendous learning experience for me, but it was a learning experience for the organization as well because you know they helped helped help them to see to some extent what the customers would see. You mentioned structure a little bit earlier in regards to building successful leadership. So you had you built a structure over at Microsoft, and you also did a similar thing over at Snowflake when you helped uh, Snowflake expand to a unicorn. How do you think startup founders who might be listening can expand that structure of leadership when growing their company? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that you know the thing I describe in leadership is is you know the three elements of, of of strategy, structure, and people are the core. And those you know, and, and if you have the, a great strategy and a functional and a functional structure and world class people, you know that's the best opportunity for success for any organization. You know, you need to be going after something that really matters for people. You know, in terms of structure, what I would say is that it's never been easier than it is now. I mean, in building a company, you know, in the in the late 1990s, you had to rent data center space and install servers and th do things like that. Now you don't have to do any of that stuff. You can, you know, you can acquire your, your computing services from, you know, certainly three cloud companies, all of them are viable, Microsoft, um, AWS, and Google are all reasonable choices. And a lot of the challenge in running any organization and building the infrastructure for an organization is making the pieces and the parts work together. And so when you have, when you're acquiring products that have that, it's very helpful. Now technology has expanded a lot. I mean, I, mean, I come back to where we were in 2014 and 2015 trying to set up a company. The, the services today are, are much more sophisticated and 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 you can do things like a really difficult thing in that time frame was billing billing was miserable you know stripe really made that a lot easier for companies in, in, the, in the subsequent time frames yeah i agree and we were just talking about this with matt higgins the other day too um so he, he was a guest on shark tank guest speaker and we both noticed that the barrier to entry for starting a business nowadays is much lower than it was before and i think that's a huge opportunity for startups nowadays to take advantage of what would be maybe your one or two pieces of advice for startups right now looking to take advantage of that well, I think that, you know, the obvious thing that's in addition to the barriers of entry, and we've, we've been living in a cloud world, a SaaS world for five plus, maybe 10 years now. Um, what's different now is we're living in an AI world. And, you know, certainly when you're doing, if you think about startups today in the tech space, at least, thinking about how AI would play a role uh, and these large language models. Um, how you might incorporate that technology is important. And you know what I always say to people is focus on an area where you have domain expertise because what's now possible, you know, and this was never possible before, it's now possible because of, of these large language models to take your expertise and essentially bottle it and put it in an application in the form of intelligence. I mean, we had the ability to put process in applications. You know, the ability to find logic and say, this is what you do first, then you do this, then you do that, you bring up this screen, that screen, etc. That's, you know, that's been around for a long time. We never had intelligence 
that could begin to rival human intelligence in the form of computing. And we now are beginning to have that. We're just at the earliest possible stages of it, but we are absolutely seeing it. And, and you, you, like I say, you can take your, your understanding of a domain, whatever that is, and apply it to an application. And I think that's where a lot of, a lot of opportunity will lie in the next few years. You mentioned expertise. What was probably the number one thing you learned at each company, both Microsoft and Snowflake, um, when working there that founders can now use to build their companies? Well, I think, you know, the, the thing I would tell you about, about those, both of those companies and, and I think, you know, almost every successful company is there is, you know, a, it was high energy, very focused, you know, there was there was always a, a, a focus among people about doing something to solve problems for customers. And uh, and they, they were always somewhat paranoid. And Andy Grove was, you know, was the, the founder of Intel. His famous statement that said, only the paranoid survive. I think Intel lost a little of that paranoia, by the way, after Andy passed away. Um, and, you know, Intel struggled as a result. And hopefully now Pat Gelsinger, who's come in there, who is, is, I think, a pretty good guy. I think he might be able to help that company. But you have to be very focused. You can never let up. In Microsoft, I would say I learned about the importance of paranoia. In Snowflake, I learned about the importance of how values um, can can be used to balance that organization, and you know in the in the world there's really two sorts of approaches to organ to running organizations. One is is to do something based on performance and focusing solely on performance metrics, and another is to focus on values. You know I tend to think you need an intermix of the two. Today we live in a world where it's really important that tech companies have values. And those values were really focused on how the, the, the company uniquely serves a role in this world and how it, how it provides services and value to its customers. Put the customer first, which is our first value, which is Snowflake's first value, was really in, enable the co company to be customer driven. You know, that's probably the one value that I think every business organization needs to have is a customer centric value because you're really there to serve your customers. Um, I learned this directly from Jeff Bezos um, at Amazon. I think, you know, think what you like, one about Amazon and Jeff. Um, you know, that is, he built a values-based organization by focusing on the what, which is performance, and the how, which is values, that that provides a really good balance for organizations. Definitely. When I interviewed Mark Cuban, one of the things he told me was, it's important to have that healthy dose of paranoia, uh, especially when building a business, um, because if you don't, right, your competitors are going to outpace you and you're not going to see it coming. How do you have a healthy dose of paranoia and not have too much or too little? What is a healthy dose? You keep an eye on what's happening, but you don't focus on it. It's that simple. You know, if you put your, if your focus becomes your competition, you're going to go down a rat hole. And, you know, I watched a company in the early days, uh, Novell, who was a competitor to Microsoft. I actually competed against them in the networking space. And, you know, the head of that company, Ray Norda, who built a great company, you know, Ray was so focused on Bill Gates and Microsoft that he started making decisions for Novell, which were not the best decisions for the company. You know, anytime you, you focus on your competitor and that becomes where your, your energy is going, you're misplacing it. The energy always must go to the customer and the focus on, on solving their problems. 
You mentioned artificial intelligence a little bit earlier and how that technology could be used for founders to help grow their businesses. Artificial intelligence is a key topic that's being talked about more and more often these days. What does it actually mean? I'm a program manager, product manager. I'm not one of the the architects building these AI systems, these machine learning systems. So my job has always been to specify the what something needs to do. So it's kind of up my alley to say what should artificial intelligence look like, even if I'm not the, the technologist that understands exactly how to make it happen. So you know, from, from, from what I was able to put together, here's the six attributes of artificial intelligence that I saw. You know, machines need to have ways of sensing. They need to have some way of understanding what's happening in the world around them. And that could be through data flowing in, or it could be from a variety of sensors and cameras and things like that. They need to be able to learn, to, to learn new things. They need to be able to reason problems through, to think through how to solve problems. And in fact, they need to extend that to be able to plan, to actually create plans to actually solve problems. When they encounter obstacles, they need to adapt to, the, to that and they need to learn from that and, 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 and make changes to the way they are. And so they essentially need to grow and they need to be able to take some form of action. Now, you know, in today's world, I would say if you look at uh, uh, this would be this would be the characteristics that would be approaching artificial general intelligence where something was really smart. Nothing does this today. I mean, GPT-4 comes the closest. Um, it, uh, it has a variety of senses. I mean, in the sense that you can type things into it. And now it can actually look at a picture. It has some reasoning ability, although probably not what you would really like to see. Its planning at this point is actually pretty weak. Um, planning is probably a pretty weak thing of these models today. And in fact, it's one of the areas of research that, that uh, the, you know, the godfathers of AI are focusing on how to make these things better at planning. And they're also not really good at adapting. That process today is not a continuous process. The process of learning is almost a batch process today. You see these things, they're trained in 2021. I mean, you ask GPT-4 a question, it says, hey, I don't know anything new, you know, anything that's happened since 2021. What's well, I mean, you know, it's got to be able to adapt. It's got to be able to learn. It's got to be able to grow constantly. And the technology hasn't quite got there. And then lastly, with acting, it needs to be able to, to do things. And it's starting to be able to do that. Um, you know, today, you know, we, we have some of these uh, answer bots, you know, like Bing is an answer bot. Bard is an answer bot. You know, there's some small ones. Companies like Perplexity have answer bots. Those will turn into action bots pretty soon. I mean, I think within a year, certainly, we'll start to see those becoming action bots where I can say to them, you know, is my is my favorite Italian restaurant, um, you have, have a table at 7.30 p.m. on Friday night, and it'll tell you, and if, if it, and, and, you know, be able to make a reservation and things like that. I think that's coming very soon, the next certainly year or two. The thing about large language models or LLMs is one of the ways they work, especially with ChatGPT, is a lot based off of pattern recognition. And the problem with that is it could be pretty difficult to detect the truth. How far do you think we are away from AI being able to determine what is true versus what isn't? How far are we from humans being able to tell that? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that really is the, that is the key question in some senses, right? I mean, is what is truth? 
and and you know are there multiple truths sometimes certainly there are multiple truths sometimes you know you may hold a truth on something and i may hold a different truth to that we may believe different things and it's important that that these models understand that and it's also important that they either not hallucinate or at least tell you when they're hallucinating sometimes we want them to hallucinate when we're when you know creativity is another form of hallucination is one way to think about it when you ask it to write a poem it's essentially hallucinating that poem and that's probably okay if you're asking it you know about a drug and you know whether you should take the drug you probably don't want it to be hallucinating in that case um the the biggest one of the biggest antidotes to hallucination is knowledge so knowledge is data that has been analyzed and some conclusion has been made. You know, Wikipedia is full of knowledge, right? It's full of, it's full of knowledge. It's full of things where there's data and, and then conclusions have been reached. And, you know, obviously that's a good source for a lot of information. It's not all true, but it's, a good, it's still a good source, right? It's, not, nothing is perfect in, in this sense. And, uh, you know, people complain about what's on Wikipedia sometimes. And, uh, and like I say, truth is one of those, is, is somewhat in the eyes of the beholder sometimes. Um, however, knowledge is the best antidote to hallucination, and the more we can provide these bots, these these uh, large language models, with facts and knowledge that can be can be used to facilitate their answers, the more accurate it is. In fact, you know the the mechanisms that people are using to apply large language models to problems that are like in-house problems. For example, going through my product support database. And trying to understand customers, you know, customer issues, products that have appeared that are problems, things like that. You know, the one of the ways you can you can improve the, the quality of the large language models is by taking your corpus of information, your knowledge base, like your product support database, and then putting it in a database, a semantic database. It's called a vector database, and then that can be used as a way of bringing in information about your organization that is relevant to answer the question for the large language model. I mean, you essentially take and run a machine learning algorithm over your entire corpus of information, and, and that turns it into these vectors, which, are, which describe the semantic intent of those different comments. And then um, you do the same thing to the question being asked, and then you, you, you do a similarity search to see, to find answers that, that match the question and then provide that to the large language model. Regulating Help. AI is one of the hardest things that uh, to be able to be done. Elon Musk and many other executives have called um, for the government to take more action on this. I think the, the biggest problem with this here is even if the U.S. government did take action to regulate the technology, maybe other countries who don't have their best interests, our best interests at heart, like China, wouldn't do, uh, make those same steps. Do you think AI can be regulated or is it already out there and it can't be? It can't be stopped. Okay, so like the idea of, of taking a six month pause, that in my opinion never made any sense because it was never going to happen. I mean, certainly to your point, China wasn't going to stop, that was for sure. So that, I, I don't believe that's possible. You know, it is possible to regulate certain behaviors, certainly, and, and we will see that. Well, originally, when, I, when all this stuff broke at the beginning of the year, I felt it was important that people take it seriously. That's happening. I mean, there's no question that people are taking this seriously. I mean, literally a day that doesn't go by when I don't see it in the news in some form or another. So there's no question about the seriousness of the topic. You know, what I always say about this is there's two distinct issues. When people talk about existential risk to humanity, 
um, which you've seen some scientists talk about. They talk about the long-term effects of the, of the development of AI as it becomes more and more intelligent, you know, where it goes from where it is today to become to have the attributes I just described a few minutes ago to become what some would call artificial general intelligence, which, which is the essentially the intelligence of a, an average person, um, and then ultimately growing beyond that to what people talk about as super intelligence, where essentially it's smarter than all of us put together. Uh, I do think that will ultimately happen, and I think it may happen in the relatively, you know, relatively not so distant time frame. Uh, I didn't think I would see that, certainly, until recently. Now I think I might see that. I don't know. I think those concerns are things that, 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 that are long-term concerns. And ultimately, what I will tell you, and, and this, this affects the short term as well, is that whatever we create is a reflection of our own values. So the real secret, in my opinion, to make, ensuring we don't have a Skynet Terminator kind of outcome, which I think most people think would be a bad outcome, is to ensure that the values in, the, in this AI that we're creating is consistent and coherent with human values and the things that we think are important. So it wants to support us. And I think if we do that, we could have an incredible, I mean, we could see an incredible period of, of growth in humanity of, you know, many things available to people that were never available before. Those are long-term things, though. In the short run, the bigger issues are the way people use AI to do things that are bad. So, you know, AI is a tool. It's a very powerful tool. It's a tool that has many uses, millions of uses. Most of them are good. Some of them are not. And like every other tool created by man, it will be used for every possible purpose, the good, the bad, and unfortunately, the evil. If somebody builds a deep fake that perfectly represents me in every way, shape, and form and posts this on YouTube saying things I don't believe and they, they, you know, they pretend it's me, that needs to be illegal. And we may need additional regular laws to... to, 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 to control that because it was never possible before. Today it's possible. In a year or two, it will be trivial. I mean, anyone will be able to do it, uh, you, know, with the, you know, with their Macintosh or whatever, they'll be able to, to, to create a deep fake. And so we need to, you know, that's an action that should not be legal. On the other hand, I, you know, I always sit back and say, I like the fact that comedians mock people. I think that's, that's, that's helpful for humanity. And if somebody wants to create a likeness of me saying something, and they and they say it's AI and it's mocking and particularly if they if they if they source it if they say who creates it, I don't think that's a problem necessarily. I mean, I think people should have the creativity to do that as long as they don't mis misrepresent what they're doing. If that makes sense. Even if replicating, for example, me uh, uh, and having a model of me say stuff that I don't believe did become illegal, because one of the things I've noticed being in the content space over the past few years is is it's extremely difficult to regulate content. How do you think content companies like YouTube, Twitter, Instagram could then detect that th that model was not real and then regulate it? I have no idea, to be honest with you. They're trying. Everybody's trying to find ways to put, fin you know, to, to find whatever the fingerprints are in these things. You know, unfortunately, it's it's probably one of those. The, look, we tried to figure out how to defeat the pirates that were trying to pirate Microsoft software for decades. We never succeeded. Never. 
did we succeed? I mean, you can succeed in the short run, but then, you know, they always come up with something else. So I, th I think, you know, ultimately you'll use AI to do it, of course. I mean, you'll, however you'll do it, it'll be AI that's doing it. I'm sure of that. Um, but, but whatever AI I can build to detect it, somebody else is going to build something to make it better. But I want to be clear, this is not an attribute of the technology. This is an attribute of people, right? This is about us. Um, it's not about the AI. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, as you know, AI gets more and more intelligent. Do you think it has the potential to become sentient? Yes. How? I do. Well, it's a real question, right? I mean, nobody really knows the answer to this. So this is a belief thing, right? This is a personal belief, and it's not. And I, I tell you, it's it's not based on on facts that I can state. Here's what I know. You know, the more that we learn about the animals around us, the more that we learn that sentience is not unique. I mean, I think it's fairly clear. I mean, anyone who's had a dog knows that a dog is sentient. I mean, come on. I mean, my dog, every dog is sentient. I mean, I'm pretty sure that every mammal predator is sentient. And then you keep going, right? You say, is a rabbit sentient? Mm, kind of, I think it probably is, honestly. I think it's very dim. Is a sheep sentient? Yes, it's a dim-witted sentient, in my opinion. Um, then you keep going down and down. Is, you know, is, a, is, is a reptile sentient? You know, to some extent, I think they're all sentient. My, my belief is they're all sentient at different levels. I mean, even a cockroach has the tiniest amount of it inside of it, although it doesn't have the complexity to understand it. And what makes us believe we're different, even though I don't know that we really are, is that our brains are complicated enough to actually understand this. Uh, whereas most of these other brains are not. But I'll bet you the whales are just as smart as we are. See, the other thing is, is that when, you know, if we have goals as, as any creature, we are programmed with goals that are built into our biology, in particular reproduction. I mean, every single, every single creature is driven to reproduce itself, to create more of itself, and that's programmed into us. And we are, we are autonomous entities that have to feed ourselves, you know, survive, avoid danger, do all these things. We learn all these things through behaviors, some of which, you know, is sort of pre-programmed in our, in our genetics. Most of it is frankly learned behavior. I think more and more we learn, learn behavior is, is more and more critical to things. But we learn these capabilities and, and I think that's what makes us essentially the, the living, breathing things we are, the sentient things we are today. I think when we have robots around us, um, you know, we'll start to see more, more signs of sentience. Although I think most robots, at least for the next 20 years, will not be artificially intelligent. I don't think they'll reach that level. I think it's, that's going to be required the larger data centers. The biggest challenge, I just talked to you know, somebody at NVIDIA who's actually designing these systems, these big, these big supercomputers, the H100 supercomputers. The biggest challenge with, with portability um, and taking this intelligence that we have in these large language models and, and putting it in, in mobile devices is power management. And um, our brains are incredibly power efficient, just unbelievably power efficient compared to the electronics that we're using today. When we eventually do reach super intelligence where technology could eventually become smarter than humans, would that be a net positive or net negative for society? Well, I think we, I hope it's a net positive. I mean, it, we're banking, I'm banking on it being a net positive. You know, the negative is very well defined. Like I say, it's really hard to beat Terminator. I mean, there's, there's been plenty of dystopian 
movies and books written, you know, for for decades talking about artificial intelligence that becomes super intelligent and and decides to destroy its first act is to destroy humanity. And like I say, Terminator did a pretty good job of showing how bad it can get. Um, but I think the good is hard is also hard to imagine because it 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 all of a sudden we you know we could begin to move into a world where we've always lived in a world of scarcity and scarcity is always defined how everything is is done. What a, what is very possible through these transitions is that that could become much much less so and we could live in a world of almost a plenty where people have the time and, and freedom to do what they want to do. And that will be particularly true if at the same time this century we solve the power problem. Because power is, and I'm not talking about portable power in, in for robots, although I think that will be solved by, by electronics um, and, some good, and, and some good algorithms. Uh, but just the generation of power. And that's why you know, I'm hopeful that we see things like fusion technology make an impact this, certainly in the, this century and hopefully in the next decade or two. If we eventually did get to the point where this technology is just so powerful and so thoughtful and intelligent, because you mentioned scarcity before, right? Uh, the thing about scarcity is it provides everything value, it provides us human value, us people value. Um, if things be eventually did not have that level of scarcity that we have today, do you think that people would also not be as valuable, especially the lower you go in the societal hierarchy as they are today? You know, I, 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 I don't think so. I mean, I think, in fact, it could be the opposite, where the values of us as individuals can really come out instead. Um, you know, we'll have to see over time. I mean, there will be, this is not, the transitions will not necessarily be trivial, easy along the way either uh, with this. You know, while if, if anyone, I recommend that everyone read um, the, the, the blog that Mark Andreessen um, wrote recently on artificial in intelligence. Um, you know, what was it? It's, it's, it's something like it's, it's going to solve all the world's problems or something like that. I forgot what it was called, but it, it was a very positive blog. And he talks about how, the way society works and the way technology works is that as we have technological revolutions, how it opens up and creates new opportunities for people to do things. I agree with that. Now, what Mark didn't say in that paper, which I think is important to say, is that, that, that it, while I believe that's true, there's a, a period of time where there's a lot of disruption in the process. And so there really will be situations where people, you know, people will be, have jobs that those jobs will go away. New jobs, I believe, will be created, but it will be difficult in some cases for people to transition into those roles. And I think that's, a, that's probably one of the bigger concerns to have in, in, the, in this medium time frame is the transitionary challenges for people as jobs become obsolete and new jobs become possible. But I do believe the new jobs will come. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be a similar thing like when we had the Industrial Revolution, like same thing, obviously more upscale. Manufacturers um, didn't do so well in that in that time frame, right? That's the classic. That probably it's probably one my joke in my my era. I don't even, the, the, right. the buggies probably before way before your time. They were before my time too, though. So <laughs> exactly. But as we begin to wrap it up, um, what would be your takeaways for the audience for artificial intelligence, and then where can they learn more about your book, uh, The Datapreneurs? Sure. Well, they can find the book at any major book retailer, certainly at Amazon, you know, it's at Barnes & Noble, etc. You can find it anywhere. You know, the book, people tell me that they're able to read it pretty quickly. I think everybody who reads The Data Printers will learn something by reading it. And that was one of my clear objectives in doing it. 
And uh, I think you know, for, it's, it, it, it's written in a way that people who are technologists can get something out of it, but also people who are less focused on technology can learn some things too. The, you know, what I would say for everyone is that you, everyone should begin to become experienced with these, this AI technology. You know, play with Stable Diffusion, play with Dolly, play with ChatGPT, begin to understand how to build these prompts, understand what that looks like. I don't think that will be, you know, that prompt creation is necessarily going to be the way things are done in the future, but I think it's interesting to understand and begin to, to understand what's possible. You know, and, and, and for anyone who's, you know, entrepreneurial and, and interested in, in beginning a business or working on a business, it is, you know, this, these, this time of AI and, and large language models is a new opportunity. It's one of those greenfield opportunities where new businesses will be created that didn't exist, that were never possible before, that, you know, that, that will, will, be, will be built. And as I say, I think the biggest thing is, is, that, is that you can take intelligence and knowledge of a given domain and bottle it into an application, into a computer application in ways that were never possible before. So if you have an area of study, if you have an area of focus with expertise, think about how you can apply that area of expertise and, and you know, build solutions uh, uh, using artificial intelligence that leverage your knowledge and your expertise. I think that's a tremendous opportunity for people. Yeah, I agree. And I think especially in today's world, we all have to have that continuous level of curiosity, learn more about AI, explore with it, um, so we don't get left behind and so we understand the future that we're stepping into. Well, thank you very much, Bob, for taking the time to join the show. For any of the audience members interested in checking out the book, The Datapreneurs, we'll have a link in the episode description where you can check it out and purchase the book and give it a read. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I greatly appreciate this conversation. It was a great one. Thanks. I enjoyed it. 